Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Aaron Ratner to the show. Aaron is a managing director at Ultra Capital. Ultra Capital finances small to mid-sized sustainable infrastructure projects in the agriculture, energy, waste, and water sectors. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Raj. Thanks very much for having me. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Aaron, I'd like to kick things off with something interesting about you that people might not know. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Something interesting that people might not know that I can disclose on this podcast. When I was younger, I wanted No one's to listening be... but me and you. <laughs> when I was younger, I uh, aspired to live with the Native Americans. And so I grew my hair down past my shoulders and spent most of the summer in a teepee learning how they lived off the land and... Uh, lost that, can't, went all the way out to Hong Kong to jump into the world of finance and private equity, and over the last seven years have come back full circle to working in sustainable infrastructure and trying to heal the land and wishing I had time to uh, grow my hair out and ride horses around the middle of the country and, and live off the land again. And so that is fascinating. Where was this and what time frame? Uh, so I grew up in outside of Boston, uh, in Massachusetts, in a small town called Carlisle. Uh, my parents moved out there after my father got out of medical school and they wanted to raise us in the country, my, myself and my younger brother. Uh, and we, we lived there. The small town doesn't even have a traffic light today. Uh, we lived there until it was time for us to move away to university. And my brother and I left and never went back. My, my parents still live there. Wow. And how long did you spend with the Native Americans? Uh, it was, you know, it was a summer camp. I think I was probably eight or seven or eight years old, but we, we spent all day in the teepee and we learned how to uh, live off the land and make fires with rocks and sticks. And, um, you know, we learned a lot of uh, skills and tools for how to tune into mother nature and, and really interact with the, the planet. You know, as a former Boy Scout, I, I'm often reminded, you know, that that time frame between the ages of, let's call it seven to 10 how many things I learned as a Boy Scout that I actually use today, you, you know, utilitarian. What are some of the things that you, you learned perhaps back then that you find that you, you know, lean on? Well, you know, I think that uh, one of the key lessons when you spend a lot of time in nature is that there's an incredible life force there. And so, you, you know, whatever you need in life, you can often find it if you turn to nature to for the, the resources and the support. It's not always evident and it's certainly not as easy to consume as buying something over the internet. But, um, you know, the, the earth has evolved over millions of years, as have we. And the system up until recently worked pretty well on its own and was quite self-sustaining. And so that, that energy and those resources are there if you, if you tap into them and you take the time to really listen. That's really interesting and a great way to put it. You know, in today's age of instant and, you know, immediate delivery, I guess, what I'm hearing you say is nature already has at hand everything we need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nature is the ultimate circular economy, right? Everything is there for a reason, and it all runs you know, runs through a system that regenerates itself and, and evolves as the, the planet evolves. But yeah, absolutely. You know, I was recently telling my daughters, they were kind of asking about, you know, the internet and optic fibers, and I was kind of explaining how the optic fibers work. And I said, look, light has been transmitting information to us our entire lives. You know, when I look at, when you look at something, it's the light bouncing off that object into your eyes that's providing you the information. And now we've just learned a different way to kind of harness that power 
for example, through, you know, fiber optics. So totally agree with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, look at, uh, you know, look at the fireplace full of wood that's burning, right? What you're actually doing is you're releasing energy from the sun that was captured by a tree decades ago, right? And stored mm -hmm. in that tree until it was cut down and chopped up and brought to your living room and then put in your fireplace to put underneath a flame that, that re-release that energy. I mean, the, the light coming out of a fireplace is, is actually just a form of captured sunlight. Right. Absolutely. We're all solar beings, right? Mm -hmm. So, Aaron, can you share a little bit about Ultra and, you know, what the mission at Ultra is? Absolutely. So we are a, you know, as you, as you mentioned in the introduction, we are a sustainable infrastructure investment firm. We invest uh, project-level finance, which means we, we don't do venture capital. We don't invest private equity. We don't actually invest in companies. We put up capital to build uh, and operate projects that are put together by developers. We have a really amazing team of people. We're at about 20 headcount right now. Our two main offices are in San Francisco and Philadelphia, and we have some people uh, running around the Midwest working on, uh, on the project sites. Uh, and the mission is to build a business that enables and facilitates the deployment of private capital into small-scale infrastructures in a space where there is incredible demand, but historically not a sufficient amount of capital to, to support the, the sector. You know, it, his, traditionally, infrastructure was a very large business where you had big firms putting big amounts of money in building toll roads and airports and dams and whatnot. And with the way that the world is going, mm -hmm. all these all this infrastructure and all these energy assets are becoming more and more distributed. So the projects have become smaller, which which makes it more difficult for the larger investment firms to execute and do those size deals. So there's a there's a gap in the market for projects that are, you know, roughly twenty five, fifty, hundred million dollars, where there there aren't a lot of investors, there aren't a lot of people who have that kind of experience. Uh, but there are a tremendous amount of, of opportunities. And so we've put together a team of entrepreneurs and former developers and former operators and engineers who uh, are all very like-minded in the, the mission of the company and, and all you know, feel very strongly about the, the, the meaning of the work that we're doing every day. And we're building a business that is really focused on our developers. You know, We see these developers out of the market, these entrepreneurs who are waking up every day trying to build a renewable natural gas project with a dairy or a wastewater treatment facility with a large corporation or an advanced recycling facility somewhere. You know, it's an incredibly challenging thing to do as it is to be an entrepreneur anywhere. And, you know, in our, in our business, what we've realized is that the, if we can support these developers and really make the business focused on them, uh, we get a very high quality of developer coming through our door, but we also see more and more projects coming together uh, in a successful manner. So you mentioned, you know, a couple of different projects. Are there any, is there a particular project you can share with the audience that you're really excited about? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I, um, I'm excited about all of our projects, full disclosure. I think they're all very unique and interesting in their own way. Uh, one of the projects that um, is just now getting ready to be commissioned that we've been working on for quite a while is called the Red River Biorefinery. It's a project up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, that we broke ground on last summer. And it's a, an agriculture waste to energy project. So we have contracted with two very large agriculture food processing companies. One of them is a 100-year-old sugar co-op called American Crystal Sugar. The other is uh, an old and very well-established potato 
largely potato business called JR Simplot. They make all the French fries for most of the fast food companies in America. Contract with both okay. those businesses to take all their waste from food processing and turn it into ethanol. So that that project, when it is fully operational, will take over 500,000 tons a year of agriculture waste that would otherwise have been left out in the open or left put in a field and upcycle that and turn it into ethanol, which will help reduce the amount of petroleum that is burned by uh, trucks and cars in the state of California. That's a pretty amazing amount. Can you give an example of what agricultural waste is? I know that so the product is a potato, for example, but what's the waste from that? So there's really two main forms of, of ag waste. There's post-harvest and there's post-processing. So post-harvest agriculture waste is all of the 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 agriculture matter, the biomass that's pulled out of the ground that uh, either because it doesn't look right, can't be sold in a field, or because of quotas and pricing issues is going to be left in the field and not sold. And so that's um, you know that's a significant volume every year in America. And then there's the the processing waste. So when you take a potato or a sugar beet and you chop it up and make it ready for consumer product, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of waste there, both from the, the biomass that you're cutting off of the, the fruit or the vegetable, but also the water that gets used for processing. And so that, ener that, that waste stream has an incredible amount of energy in it. There's a lot of starch and sugar. Sometimes in other forms of waste, there's a lot of fat and protein. And you can take all of that energy and rather than disposing of it into a wastewater plant or just putting it in a hole in ground, you can uh, treat it or run it through certain processes. And in this case, um, you know, we're, we're putting it in a, in a distillation process and turning it into ethanol, just as you would if you were if you were running a, a purpose-grown corn ethanol plant. But what's interesting about the project is that we're capturing a waste stream. So up until, you know, our arrival, this was a, a cost center for these companies. They were paying to get rid of their waste stream where they were just leaving it in a field and hoping that it would, it would rot by spring. And so we've what we've figured out how to do here and what we're trying to figure out how to do all across the agriculture sector is to take formerly linear processes where you had people just doing something one way because that's the way we always did it and it ended with a, a hole mm -hmm. in the ground getting filled up with you know garbage or agriculture biomass waste or or electronic waste or whatever that is we're trying to change that behavior and doing it through a profit incentive so rather than just sitting there and saying well you shouldn't do that you shouldn't throw that away we're creating a system um, and a project in this case where it actually becomes profitable for people to minimize their waste disposal and to upcycle their waste. So I, I'm, I'm guessing the farmers must be really happy with that. First, they were paying to have the waste taken away, and now they're actually making revenue from it. Yeah, that. that's, that's exactly right. It becomes, a, it becomes a profit center for them. And, you know, the great example of that today is the dairy sector, where milk prices are depressed and low and are, you know, may not come back up for a while. And there's a lot of pressure on the milk sector from plant-based milk alternatives. Uh, and so the dairies around this country are, are struggling and, you know, they all are milking as many cows as they possibly are permitted to milk in order to produce as much milk and try to, you know, keep themselves afloat economically. And they've all, because of that, they've all got manure disposal problems. I mean, they, every dairy uses a little bit of its manure to land apply for fertilizer, but they've all got more manure than they, they can process on site. And so, you know, with some of the projects we're working on and some other investors in this sector are working on as well, uh, private capital is showing up and building these digester facilities where you're taking the 
the dairy manure turning into clean, renewable, natural gas, and in the process, not only creating a self-sustaining project economically, but putting money back into the pocket of the, the dairy farmer, which at the moment is really critical for their survival. Those are pretty amazing. You know, earlier you touched briefly on some of the challenges you see in the developers happen. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, so fundamentally, the developers in this sector are entrepreneurs. And, and being an entrepreneur in any sector is challenging. You have to wake up every day and create something out of nothing. And, and that's hard. It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, what sector you're in. In this sector in particular, these are people who have decided that they want to try to make the world a better place. And they're going to try to figure out a way to do that and make some money for themselves at the same time. But in every case, they are trying to create something within a system, as I mentioned earlier, that has historically been quite linear and just doesn't operate that way. You know, most of the industrial systems mm -hmm. in this country are not circular. They end with waste disposal and then somebody goes and buys a new product. So, you know, these developers are, um, you know, historically they, they don't come out of big companies. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they don't exactly have a lot of resources around them. So if they need to, they have to pay for everything that they, they need to get done. So whether they need a, a permit survey, they need an environmental survey for a site, they need uh, preliminary engineering to get a good sense of what their, the project they have in mind might cost. Uh, they have to negotiate with a waste provider, whether it's a dairy or a corporation or a big ag company. They need to, you know, get a preliminary sense of what, they, what they'll need to pay to secure that waste stream. All those things take time and money. And most developers in the, the sort of sustainable infrastructure space are, are not, um, you know, they're not really young. They're, they're people who've been around for a while. And so they often have families and spouses and children and people they have, they're responsible for on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's a, there's a lot of risk in the work itself being successful. There's a lot of risk in trying to do it over a certain amount of time when uh, you know, no one's paying the bills and, and the only way you're ever going to make any, any money from it is, is getting a project done. There's, in, in this sector, there's no credit and no profit in getting a project half developed. And so what that means for, mm -hmm. you know, for us is you know, we really look at our developers and we try to think of them as our, our customers, as the, the brave entrepreneurs out in the field really spearheading these projects. And so around them, you know, when we sign a term sheet with them and we commit to doing a project, we give them resources in the form of uh, software we use to help them get a better look at their project, templates and checklists to help them stay really organized, uh, developer support services uh, like, like your company, Nexus, which is a tremendous value to every developer we work with. We, and, and um, you. you know, we, we bring all that around them so that you know everybody at the table is, has their same interests aligned and they can focus on what they do best which is often being on the ground every day getting things done and maintaining the key relationships with the key counterparties of these projects while the this you know 12 months passes while the project goes from you know pretty good idea to financial closing and putting money in the ground right so if you could sit down with the developer before they came to you what's perhaps one or two things you would tell them that in order to get ready to come speak to Ultra? <laughs> so the, the one thing I tell developers, I find myself telling developers lately, is it's really important to have the difficult conversations as early as possible. And what I mean by that is this sector is <clears throat> full of shiny objects. All of these projects are fascinating, and they're all <laughs> going to make the world a better place if they come together. And that's wonderful and amazing. 
Uh, and so the developer has to believe that every single day when they wake up, or otherwise they were not going to get out of bed. So the developers come to work every day with an optimistic lens. And that is both incredibly empowering, but also can be limiting in the sense that it sometimes blinds them to um, some of the, the, the limitations or, or risks to their project. And so, you know, as they go out and start to raise capital, or they go and they talk to, let's go back to the example of a dairy farmer, they go talk to a dairy farmer about capturing the, the manure from his, his dairy. Uh, oftentimes they have a quick conversation, feel like it's directionally positive, and then keep going rather than really have getting into the weeds early. Uh, and if you overlook some of those steps, you can end up in, um, in a situation where the, the project is, is really challenging to close. That's particularly true in the case of the investment community. There, you know, the, the capital that's available to developers in this sector is comes from a variety of sources. There are a few um, rapidly growing, very well-run um, sustainable infrastructure investment funds that are contemporaries of, of, of my fund, Ultra Capital. There are some larger groups that are, you know, mm -hmm. big, large uh, infrastructure funds that are trying to come down to this size. But there are also a myriad of family offices that think they want to do some good and put some money to work or pro local private equity firms that have never done a project deal but think they'd like to look at it or venture capital firms that, that feel the same way or uh, many times there's a wealthy individual who thinks he really wants to put money into the project but you know uh, doesn't really understand it and in all those cases uh, developers serve themselves really well by making sure very early on that everybody at, at the table everyone they brought together understands all of the commitments and sacrifices that are going to need to be made in order to get the project financed. It's, it's uh, you know, sometimes it feels like uh, you got to get the stars to align, but that's because they're unlike a venture capital deal where there's the entrepreneur and an investor and they can, you know, write a three page legal document and cut the check in project finance. You have to pre-negotiate and pre-agree on a long list of documents and terms in order to get the deal done. And that goes everything from the site and the environmental to the feedstock and the offtake to the engineering and the equipment and who's going to run it and who's going to run the business. And so any one of those things going sideways can derail a project and, and developers who don't early on really have the face-to-face -face conversation with all those counterparties and, and make sure they understand what it's going to take, find themselves often with a project that's very close to closing but isn't going to actually close because there's some sort of binary outcome threat that they, they washed over earlier in their process. So if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the things I took away from what you just said is that perhaps a developer should do just as much homework or due diligence on the investors or the investment community that they're speaking to as the investment absolutely so that, that's exactly right so what you know uh, developers when i give that answer i just gave you developers often say well what does that mean i say well the next time you sit down with an investor ask them the following questions how many projects like this have they already financed that are in the ground and running today how many projects have they looked at and declined what were the key reasons that they declined can you talk to some of the developers in whom, with whom they've already invested right figure out what their actual experience is in that vertical uh, if you don't, you can end up with some really well-intentioned people who just don't have the capacity to close the deal. And that's a consistent frustration for developers across this sector is that they end up in negotiations with a potential investor who doesn't finish diligence and isn't able to close the deal. And the, you know, the developer is running out of money and the project needs to get in the ground and it, it just creates a lot of heartache. 
that's understandable. And I, you know, money is almost sometimes too easy to get, but the stipulations or the individuals that you're dealing with, you want to ensure that they are qualified to give you the money too. So totally agree with you. You know, you mentioned developers and optimism earlier. And one of the things I like to really focus on with my guest is the why behind what they're doing. So what's driving you in the Simon Sinek sense of the why? What motivates you and what keeps you an optimist? Well, you know, I, I think it's a variety of things. And, and if you ask me that question every day, five days in a row, you probably get a different answer. So I'll answer for today in the present. I, you know, I think um, for one, the, the planet really needs it, right? If you think about what the opportunity is here for sustainable infrastructure, you can kind of draw a Venn diagram around you know, financial returns, which, which seem to be available and real and attractive to uh, investors. Another circle could be all of the people involved in the sector who, for the most part, are trying to make the world a better place. And then the third circle of that Venn diagram is the fate of the planet actually depends on the su successful outcome here. So um, in one sense, <laughs> yeah, not, not to be, be taken lightly. lightly at all. You know, in one sense, uh, it's very important to it, that, that some people are engaging in this um, form of commerce that's showing the world that there's a way for sustainable businesses to be increasingly profitable. And, and, and you know, profitability is actually a component of sustainability, right? If you set up a business that can't stand on its own two feet economically and needs donations every year, then in some ways it's not very sustainable. And so w uh, we are very passionate about showing the world that the time has come where it is becoming increasingly profitable to invest in businesses that are healing the planet. And being a part of that movement and having the ability uh, to deploy capital into that space is, uh, is a real blessing. It's something that, that you know, I, 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 mean, I love what I do. And I, I think the developers that we work with are all very interesting people. And all, all the people in the sector with whom we get to interact are, are, um, are wonderful in their own way. So let's go back in the conversation, the time you spend with the Native Americans. Do you feel like that experience is also contributing to what you're doing today? Sure it is. In full disclosure, you know, I was in a, in a, in a summer camp in a teepee in Massachusetts, so I wasn't actually hanging out in the Black Hills um, running, you know, through the, the prairies chasing down buffalo. But I think it did. You know, I, um, I grew up in a really great family and my family's still really close and we were always very tuned into nature. And I, I spend a lot of my free time climbing mountains and still do today. And, you know, when I got a little older and I got out of college, I started working in finance and ended up in Hong Kong wearing tailored suits and staying up way too late for my own good every night and just sort of <laughs> focusing on making money out of money and continued on that path for a while. Um, but two things became very clear to me. One was that I wasn't actually that good at just making money for money's sake. And the reason for that was that I didn't really care as much as I loved competing and trying to win and whatnot. I didn't really care so much about the outcome. And I, I followed that path until I got to a point where, um, I just realized that I was, I felt like I was wasting my time in this life, just doing that and being very self-serving and, uh, you know, I happened to meet a really remarkable uh, woman named Ashley Allen about eight years ago who had been in the impact space for a long time and was looking to <clears throat> build an impact investment uh, business. 
Uh, and so she had put something together called I2 Capital Group, and I joined her as the president of the firm. And you know, we we were she was in Washington D.C. at the time, and I was in in California. And you know, we set out to build an impact investment merchant bank. And the first project that we worked on was a project in Wyoming called the, the Sweetwater River Conservancy, which was a one and a half million acre mitigation bank. It's a very large land uh, conservation project put together by a an entrepreneur by the name of Jeff Meyer. And the mitigation banking is a program in the U.S. where you take private capital and you buy and convert land into permanent conservation land. And for that, you get credits, hmm. which energy companies buy to offset their development. So this okay. fellow, Jeff, had raised about $125 million to go out and buy all this land and turn it into permanent conservation land. And it happened to be in Alcova, Wyoming, right along the Oregon Trail. And so we, we ended up out spending time in Wyoming, riding horses around uh, a part of America that was really historic. It was it was right near a, a rock called Independence Rock, which is a big half dome rock that uh, families would carve their name and, and date on. And it was called Independence Rock because if you were trying to get over the, the Northwest Passage, you wanted to be at or past this rock by July 4th. And if you, if you were there any later, you were probably going to get caught in the snow. So it's a really interesting part of America. But we were you know, that, that part of the country is beautiful. Um, you know, it's full of wild herds of antelope and bear, and it's just stunning. And so we, we spent a lot of time out there, and it sort of brought me back to a feeling that there was a way forward where, um, you know, I could spend my time trying to heal the planet, but also, uh, you know, creating uh, financial returns, doing so for, for my investors and myself, and, and really show the next generation of young people in this country and around the world that, that it, we are now at a point where uh, it is profitable to do good for the planet, not just extract from the planet. That's really interesting. And, I, and as you were talking, I kind of feel like, you know, a lot of your experiences have drawn you back to almost, almost to your calling. Yeah, it feels like that. I, I uh, you know, uh, joke around sometimes with our investors and my partners that have, um, something ever happened, you know, and we had to shut our firm down, I would wake up tomorrow morning and do the exact same thing for free. So I, I can't imagine doing anything else with my time. And that's, you know, that's another thing that you learn when you get a little bit older in life is that uh, that's the only thing you can never get back. And it's the only thing that you can't buy is, is another day. And so to, to find work that is meaningful and to work with people who find that work meaningful and who have a shared vision and to empower communities and these developers we work with to put these projects up and really, you know, get, get that sustainable infrastructure on the map. That's just a, a really amazing way to, to spend uh, a day. You know, I, I feel the same way too, the, the ability or the opportunity to do work with meaning. I think, you know, it, it, it alleviates so many other issues that are, you know, in life in general, the fact that you can wake up in the morning and feel like you go to work to contribute, to give back. And like you said, get paid to do so. So I totally agree with you. Aaron, one of the things I like to ask is, if there was a piece of advice you could share with the audience, what would it be? <laughs> uh, you know, um, given what we just talked about, I think uh, what, I would, what I would say is, if you really look inside yourself and you understand what it is you want to do and what it is you're most passionate about, you will most likely also discover what you are best at. And that's another thing I see young people 
sometimes doing is they, they think they just want to go and make some money. So they, they move to New York City or they just get involved in an investment business so they can make their first million or their second million. Um, but they struggle at it and they feel unfulfilled. And, and partly that's because um, money is a, is a poison in many ways and it can make people feel very empty. But it's also because those people end up in a situation where they have financial stability, they have resources to go on vacation and do all the sort of things they thought they wanted to do, but they're not, they're not fulfilled on a very deep, deeper level. And, and one of the truths about life is that doing what you are most passionate about is a path to doing what you have the innate skills to be best at in life. And so trying mm -hmm. to really, taking the time early to really think about that and not get caught up in all of the buzz and momentum and, and gravity around the importance of making money or being somebody or being seen or what, you know, all the things your ego tells you is, is um, something that's quite challenging, but something that's very important to do. So let me ask you a question regarding that. You know, in today's day and age, when so many headlines are driven by six habits of multimillionaires or how to be a millionaire by 30 or 40 by 40, how, how would you, what would you say to someone in their twenties to, you know, try to cut out that noise and to focus on, you know, what, they're passionate about or what drives them put away your phone <laughs> i think i think one of the you know one of the biggest you and i are on the same page yeah you know one of the biggest challenges for everybody on the planet um every adult who needs to drive a car safely in the morning and every kid who's growing up these days is um you know access to these very visually addictive um devices that we carry around in our pockets all the time uh, they just create a lot of noise, both mental noise and audible noise. And it just um, it is destroying the capacity for people to think and focus and get into a deep state of contemplative thought. And if you if you never get into a deep state of contemplative thought, you never really know who you are and you never really get a good read on what you're looking at in life. And so the the ability to detach from all of that and just think clearly is something that has largely been lost. Although I will say that most of the successful people in the, in the world out there who are taking the time to write books or blogs about how they became successful, uh, most of them will mention mindfulness or meditation as, as part of the tool set that they used to get to where they were going in life. Again, full agreement. I had a conversation yesterday with a gentleman who actually said that he feels like if we all had the ability to be more present, we could all make an impact to improve the earth and improve the environment. So totally agree. And I think, you know, I echo your sentiment. Aaron, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience today before we sign off? Uh, you know, I guess I would just say that, um, but, uh, you know, in this sector in particular, in the sustainable infrastructure sector, there are a lot of people who uh, came to it a little later in life who worked in finance or worked in engineering at, you know, and are now in it because they not only want to spend the rest of their career doing it, but also they really want to pass along skills and tools and enable another next generation of younger people to you know, find an extremely profitable future in the circular economy and the sustainability sector. And, what that means, among other things, is that most of the people in this sector are really accessible. Even the heads of big investment firms uh, are available to talk to young people about what they want to do and, and how they want to develop their careers. And here in Philadelphia, uh, we're building a relationship with the Wharton School. I, I attended Stanford University, and we're, we're working on a relationship with them. So 
Um, but in any case, you know, in, anytime anybody reaches out to me, I almost always try to find some time to speak with them. So the, if to young people, to developers, people who are trying to get into this sector and aren't really sure what it's all about, I would, I would encourage cold calling, encourage people to really reach out and, you know, speak what's on their mind and share that they're thinking about getting into this business and that it feels meaningful to them, but they're not really sure how, because on the other end of that conversation and that connection, there will almost always be somebody who's willing to take the time to, to facilitate that and to support that effort. Well, I really appreciate that, Aaron. I'll put a link to the firm when I publish the, publish the episode and then sure once they get to the firm's link they can find you and then connect with you on linkedin so excellent i'll just put that in the notes excellent aaron thank you so much for your time today and i really appreciate you sharing your story i look forward to catching up with you again soon. thank you raj it was wonderful to connect have a great day